And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. When the disco craze peaked in 1979, the disco audience was, like America itself at the time, predominantly white, heterosexual, and suburban. But disco didn't start out that way. At its beginning, it was an underground scene, dominated by gay men, Hispanics, and African Americans. But then, in late 1977, a film called Saturday Night Fever was released, And that film had the effect of turning what was a subculture into a mainstream fad, one which then completely dominated American popular culture. I'm Steve Greenberg. Welcome to Speed of Sound. In June 1976, At the height of the first wave of the disco boom, New York Magazine published a cover story with the title Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. The piece was written by Nick Cohn, a British journalist who, up until that point, had achieved his greatest notoriety due to his love of playing pinball. You see, Nick Cohn was the inspiration for the song Pinball Wizard in the Who's rock opera Tommy. But Nick Cohn's greater contribution to the culture was as the author of a 1969 book alternately known as Pop from the Beginning or A Wop Bob A Loo Bop A Lop Bam Boom. This book was one of the very first histories of rock and roll ever published. And incidentally, it's my personal favorite book about the subject. In Pop from the Beginning, Nick Cohn professed his great love for what he termed super pop, which to him was simple, fast, flashy music filled with sexual energy, music that had the ability to catch teen obsessions and freeze them in images. Think Chuck Berry or those early Who records. So it was no surprise that in 1976, Nick Cohn became fascinated by disco, a flashy, sexy phenomenon. When Nick Cohn became aware of disco, it was just bubbling up to the surface from New York's black and gay undergrounds, and it was starting to become massively popular in, among other places, the Italian-American neighborhoods of Brooklyn, New York.
The New York Magazine article by Nick Cohn dealt with the life of a 19-year-old Brooklyn resident named Vincent, who worked in a dead-end job selling paint at a local hardware store. Vincent's only means of release was getting dressed up on Saturday night and dancing at his local disco, which was called 2001 Odyssey. That disco opened in 1975 in Vincent's neighborhood of Bay Ridge, which was a blue-collar, mostly Italian neighborhood. At 2001 Odyssey, Vincent was the king. He was great-looking, and he was the best dancer. Everyone's eyes were fixated on him when he danced. Vincent's whole existence revolved around those Saturday nights at 2001 Odyssey, where he danced, did drugs, and occasionally had sex in the backseat of a car in the parking lot. Now, Nick Cohn offered very detailed descriptions of the scene at 2001, based on having followed Vincent and his crew on their disco adventures for a few months. And for most readers of New York Magazine, this was their first insider glimpse of the disco nightlife. However, what no one knew at the time was that it was all made up. Nick Cohn hadn't spent weeks watching Vincent at 2001 Odyssey because there was no Vincent. He was a figment of Nick Cohn's imagination. But that was a secret known only to Nick Cohn until he finally fessed up over 20 years later. It turns out Nick Cohn actually had traveled to Bay Ridge to check out the scene at 2001 Odyssey. But when he pulled up to the club in a taxi, there was a drunken brawl taking place outside on the sidewalk. As Cohn recalled it, Just as I opened my side door, one of the brawlers emerged from the pack, reeled over towards the gutter, and threw up, with fine precision, all over the side of the cab and my trouser legs. I took it as a sign. Quickly slamming the door, I ordered us back to Manhattan. But while pulling away in the cab, Nick Cohn noticed one club goer standing in the doorway at 2001 and calmly observing the brawl as it took place. Cohn was really intrigued by this young fellow who, to him, seemed to possess a certain star quality. So... Cohn returned to 2001 the very next week, hoping to speak with him. But he never found him. Nick Cohn did make it inside the club on his second visit, but didn't learn much. The noise level was deafening. The crush of sweaty bodies suffocating. And none of my attempts at striking up conversation got past the first few sentences. Plus, I made a lousy interviewer. I knew nothing about this world, and it showed. Quite literally, I didn't speak the language. So I made it up. Nick Cohn may not have known anything about disco, but what he did know a lot about was the mod scene that was popular in the mid-60s among certain British youth. And so he wrote his article about a figment of his imagination who was a composite of the guy standing in the doorway at 2001 and a mod that he knew when he was a teenager in London. Cohn sensed that there were a lot of similarities between the disco crowd and the 1960s British mods. They both had that obsession with fashion and music, and they had aspirations to present as being better off than they really were. That desire of a blue-collar worker to not be defined by his job, but rather by who he is when he goes out. That intense focus on Saturday night by a nobody who once a week gets to be a somebody. It's no coincidence that Vincent's crowd in the Nick Cohn article were known as the Faces, which happens to be exactly what stylish mods were known as in England during the swinging 60s. By the way, if you're interested in getting a sense of what the mod scene in London was like, definitely check out the movie Quadrophenia featuring music by who else but The Who. Well, I don't want to be the same as everybody else. That's why I'm a mod, see? I mean, you got to be somebody, ain't you? Or you might as well jump in the sea and drown. Anyway, that New York Magazine article about the 2001 Odyssey disco wound up in the hands of a man named Robert Stigwood, who was an Australian-born music mogul. Earlier in the 70s, Stigwood expanded his empire into film. He produced the movie adaptations of Jesus Christ Superstar and The Who's Tommy. Robert Stigwood read the New York Magazine story and decided that a movie about the disco scene just might be a hit. So he picked up the film rights to Cohn's article, and then he brought in as the star of the movie, John Travolta, who was at that point the hottest teen idol in America. He starred in a top-rated television comedy called Welcome Back, Cotter, where he played a tough but lovable Italian-American high school student in Brooklyn named Vinnie Barbarino. Hey, Cotter, up your nose with rubber hose. 
The film that Stigwood's company made, Saturday Night Fever, really fleshed out the lead character, who now went by the name Tony Monero. It especially fleshed out his home life. In the movie, Tony lived at home in Bay Ridge with his parents. His father was an unemployed construction worker. His mother was a housewife. And even though his family had trouble making ends meet, his father forbade his mother from working outside the home. It was the man who was supposed to put bread on the table. This depiction really resonated in the America of 1977, which had been hit really hard by an economic recession and where opportunity seemed extremely limited. Now, just like in Nick Cohn's original article, the 2001 disco was the place where Tony Monero ruled as the greatest dancer. Incidentally, in this movie version of the club, the DJ was played by none other than Sir Monty Rock III of Disco Tex and the Sexolettes fame. They were the group whose early disco hit, Get Dancing, we discussed in the previous episode of Speed of Sound. Hey, Monty, what are you playing that shit for? What are you talking about, baby? Look at that chick. She's a dancing man. She's proving. The hottest stars on the roster of Robert Stigwood's record label, RSO Records, the initials stood for Robert Stigwood Organization, were the Australian brothers, the Bee Gees, who'd already had a couple of number one records with disco songs. But Stigwood, oddly enough, didn't initially consider them to write the music for the film. Robert Stigwood's original choice for the song that would be playing along with the film's iconic opening scene of John Travolta strutting down the street was Boz Skaggs' hit from the year before, Lowdown. However, Boz Skaggs' label, Columbia Records, turned down the opportunity to have that song in Saturday Night Fever, holding it back for their own soundtrack to a film which dealt with New York nightlife, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. So Stigwood turned to the Bee Gees, and they worked up a song. Now, originally the chorus of the song the Bee Gees wrote had them singing Saturday Night, Saturday Night, as a nod to the title of the film. But eventually they changed it to Staying Alive, which better captured the grittiness of the movie. The lyrics of Staying Alive, I've been kicked around since I was born. You may look the other way. Really summed up that late 70s sense of powerlessness and apathy that a lot of American young people were feeling. And that sense of hopelessness was especially acute among New York teenagers in 1977. It was a moment when the city careened from one convulsion to another. New York City was on the brink of bankruptcy, and that meant that garbage went uncollected, the schools were underfunded, there were very minimal municipal services and high crime and burnt-out neighborhoods, not to mention Son of Sam, a serial killer who terrorized the city for the first half of the year, and a citywide blackout that summer, which resulted in mass looting and a general sense of chaos. Now, with this horrendous state of affairs, New York City produced two distinct musical responses. There was the punk scene, which was incubating in downtown clubs like CBGB's. And there was disco. Punk was nihilistic. It was resigned to this idea of no future. Disco, on the other hand, was escapist, glamorous and aspirational. Punk rock was actually what the music industry was betting on at that time to become the next big thing. And the major labels were falling over each other to sign punk's most notorious act, the Sex Pistols. But then, along came Saturday Night Fever. The movie premiered in theaters just before Christmas 1977. As we've discussed previously, 1977 saw disco begin to recede as a force on American pop radio. In fact, the week Saturday Night Fever was released, the biggest disco hit on the Billboard Top 40 was all the way down at number 34. In disco's place, a lot of sappy adult pop by artists like Barry Manilow and Debbie Boone were filling the Top 40 airwaves. Light up my 
New York's pioneering disco station, WPIX-FM, actually abandoned the disco format in the summer of 1977 and switched to album rock, which of course would prove to be incredibly bad timing. At the same time, though, going out to dance at discos on the weekend was still a really popular activity all across the country. It was a relatively cheap form of entertainment, and that made it especially appealing in the middle of a recession. And so record producers and remixers kept on making records for all those club goers to dance to, even if they were unlikely to become pop hits. At this moment, disco music stood at a crossroads. The originators of disco were disillusioned by the dilution of the sound, which was becoming more lowest common denominator, and the purists hated the phoniness that was really starting to creep in. Studio 54 was grabbing lots of headlines, but that was a celebrity scene, very far removed from that original communal spirit of disco. Legendary DJ David Mancuso's New York Record Pool, which was a nonprofit organization that made possible the distribution of disco records to club DJs, actually closed down the same week Saturday Night Fever opened. Because David Mancuso, the original disco DJ who pioneered the scene at his club, The Loft, became fed up by all the cynicism that was taking over the scene. Disco really did start to feel like it might be over. Coming up, America catches the fever, but it takes a ballot to get things going. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Jamaica and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. Prior to the release of Saturday Night Fever, RSO Records was actually scared that they were coming out with their movie too late and that they'd already missed the disco fad that they were trying to cash in on in the first place. RSO Records was very aware of pop radio's move away from the disco sound, and so to hedge their bets, they decided to release a ballad as the first single from the movie soundtrack, instead of one of the disco songs. The BG song, How Deep Is Your Love, was released in September 1977, three months before the film came out, and it was approaching number one on the charts when Saturday Night Fever premiered on December 16th. Now, the combination of John Travolta's charisma, he was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar, the BG songs, and a surprisingly good script made Saturday Night Fever a phenomenon, which in turn made disco much bigger than it had ever been. It's actually entirely possible that without Saturday Night Fever, disco might have petered out in the broader culture and resumed being a niche subculture. 
But instead, the movie's runaway success caused the whole disco scene to become turbocharged. And it also changed disco in pretty significant ways. For instance, the original script for Saturday Night Fever called for all the dances in the film to be partner dances and line dances, like the hustle and the bus stop, which were the kind of dances people actually did at discos like 2001 Odyssey. You can check those dances out on YouTube if you're curious what they looked like. But John Travolta felt that he needed to do a solo dance in order to really develop his character, and so he insisted that they change the script so he could be featured doing a freestyle dance. According to Travolta, I had to enforce that scene. They were basing this movie on him being the best dancer, and he didn't have a solo. I had to prove to the audience that he was the best. And so, in the middle of the film, John Travolta breaks free from his dance partner and does a solo dance to the song You Should Be Dancing, a Bee Gees hit from the previous year that was inserted into the movie for just this purpose. Little did anybody know at the time that this little added scene would completely change the dynamic of disco dancing because disco goers now felt they were given license to do their own thing on the dance floor rather than try to learn a couple's dance. This was actually convenient considering that in the wake of the film's success, the number of discos increased exponentially. Over 40,000 new discos sprouted up across the U.S. in the first year after Saturday Night Fever came out. And we can safely assume that a lot of those new disco denizens weren't very accomplished dancers. Now, while our collective cultural memory of Saturday Night Fever centers around the music and the dancing, it was actually a very smart movie. It was a story about a young person whose life is going nowhere until he finds, in dance, the strength to break free from his surroundings. Truth is, at its heart, Saturday Night Fever was a dark, even brutal depiction of sexual aggression and depression among working-class Italian kids stuck in 1977 Brooklyn. Crucially, Saturday Night Fever gave Middle America a visual sense of disco culture. The scenes inside 2001 Odyssey were directly inspired by a series of paintings by an artist named James McMullen, whose work appeared alongside Nick Cohn's original New York Magazine article. And these scenes offered a picture of a secret world full of glamour, full of passion, where, sure, there were exceptional dancers, but there were also dancers no better than the average Joe. And even those dancers could feel they could be someone for a night. 2001 Odyssey was an approximation of Studio 54's glamour, but it was accessible to anybody. And notably, while the first wave of disco was overwhelmingly a black and gay scene, Saturday Night Fever made it all about white, heterosexual people. It was that aspect of the movie that really helped sell disco's appeal to middle America and make it feel safe. Now I'll tell you, John Travolta's portrayal of Tony Manero in that movie really struck a chord with people I knew in high school in New York City back then. Tony was just like a lot of guys at our high school, guys from blue-collar families, guys about to graduate school with not much in the way of a future to look forward to. Guys who, consequently, decided to just live for today. I remember this being our favorite line from the film. Oh, fuck the future. No, Tony, you can't fuck the future. The future fucks you. It catches up with you, and it fucks you if you ain't planned for it. And so, Saturday Night Fever simultaneously glamorized life on the dance floor under the mirrored ball at the 2001 Odyssey, and made clear that the pleasures being experienced by Tony Manero at the club were extremely fleeting. Now, propelled by the music of the Bee Gees, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack became the biggest selling album of all time in its day. It moved 25 million units worldwide, and it wasn't surpassed until Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1983. <laughs> In addition to the number one ballad, How Deep Is Your Love, the movie spawned three other number one songs, all written by the brothers Gibb. There was the aforementioned Staying Alive, plus another Bee Gees recording that actually did manage to work in the title of the film, Night Fever. The final number one song from Saturday Night Fever was a Bee Gees composition called 
If I Can't Have You, which Robert Stigwood decided to give to a singer on his label named Yvonne Elliman. She was one of the stars of Stigwood's film version of Jesus Christ Superstar, and she'd also had some success on the charts in 1976 with her cover of a Barry Gibbs song called Love Me. Yvonne Elliman was originally supposed to sing How Deep Is Your Love in the movie, but Robert Stigwood felt that the song was just too good for the Bee Gees to give away. And so he let her record If I Can't Have You as a sort of consolation prize. And it ended up being a number one record. If I can't have you Saturday Night Fever's popularity led to belated success for yet another song that was closely associated with the film, but which was not a Brothers Gibb song. Disco Inferno, recorded by the fathers of disco, the Tramps, was originally released in early 1977. And while the song was a massive hit in the clubs, it went to number one for six weeks on Billboard's disco chart, which measured club play. It failed to even reach the top 40 on the Billboard Hot 100, this being the period when interest in disco music had really begun to wane on pop radio. Disco Inferno was a throwback in its own way to the early days of disco when soul music had a much more direct influence on the disco sound. Being featured in Saturday Night Fever brought Disco Inferno back and made it way bigger. In fact, it became one of the defining songs of the whole disco era. The Saturday Night Fever album went to number one during the third week of January 1978, and it stayed at number one for six months. And the film experienced the same kind of longevity in movie theaters. I remember seeing Saturday Night Fever when it came out in December of 1977, and I remember seeing it again at the very same movie theater during Memorial Day weekend in 1978. Now, as far as Saturday Night Fever's impact on the music world, Initially, its success just led to a boom in popularity of songs specifically from the movie and also anything associated with the Bee Gees, regardless of whether or not it was even disco. The Bee Gees owned the spring of 1978 on pop radio. Songs written by the Bee Gees at one point held down the top five positions on the Billboard Hot 100, which is something even the Beatles never accomplished because when the Beatles had the top five records on the chart back in April of 1964, they'd only written four of the five songs since one of those five was a cover version of Twist and Shout. But 1978 was total Bee Gees mania. In the nine months following Saturday Night Fever's release, songs written by the Brothers Gibbs spent an astonishing 27 weeks at number one on the pop chart, with four of those songs being from the movie, plus two by the Bee Gees' little brother, Andy Gibb. And finally, there was the Barry Gibb pen theme from another Robert Stigwood film, Grease, sung by Frankie Valli. In the early months of 1978, record labels responded to the crazy popularity of Saturday Night Fever by signing a slew of new disco acts, which set the stage for the massive disco explosion of 1979. Notably, the major labels resolved to get in on the action, and this meant doing things in a very major label way. Developing stars, which was really kind of counter to the whole disco aesthetic, where producers and DJs had always been the real stars. And the major labels were out to sell albums, which were, of course, more profitable than singles, even though disco had always very much been a singles-based genre. At CBS Records, which was, at that time, the dominant company in the music industry, there had been a rebellion of sorts in the ranks of the sales force who were complaining that CBS couldn't compete unless they placed a much heavier bet on disco. 
In response to this, CBS worked up a report with the imposing title, Research Report on Artist Development as it Pertains to Disco-Oriented Product of May 1978. The report recommended, among other things, that CBS sign more disco artists and put more emphasis on promoting those artists in clubs using extended 12-inch mixes. To achieve that last goal, CBS, along with the other major labels, hired dedicated disco promotion staffs whose jobs were to go out to the discos and convince the DJs to play their records. Bobby Shaw, who was a promo man for Warner Brothers Records during that period, remembers the job. I was promoting just to the club DJs. And, you know, in those days it was a little different because, you know, there was no downloading and you literally had to hand deliver a piece of music to somebody or put it in the mail or send it by messenger. You know, there was no, uh, I'm pressing a button and here it is. It made for a lot better relationships. And, you know, in this day and age, relationships seem to be going down the tubes. While CBS adopted the report's recommendations, the president of the company made sure to emphasize in the music press that the label's focus in signing disco acts was going to be toward developing complete artists and not the creation of what he termed a fabricated disco sound using non-artists. And anticipating that there'd be a massive demand for disco albums, CBS decided to invest in brand new manufacturing facilities to produce more vinyl LPs. This business decision would, as we shall see, prove to be quite costly. So by the summer of 78, the club DJs and the pop radio stations were playing all these new major label disco acts like RCA's Evelyn Champagne King, whose mother was an office cleaner at Gamble and Huff's Philadelphia International Records and who was discovered there by a producer named Theodore Life. He actually heard Evelyn King singing in the washroom while she was helping her mom at work. Now, if it had been a couple of years earlier, Theodore Life would certainly have brought Evelyn King to Gamble and Huff, whose washroom she was cleaning. But with the major labels offering big money contracts for disco product, he took her to RCA Records, where she had a smash hit first time out with Shame. Meanwhile, Capitol Records got behind A Taste of Honey, a Los Angeles group brought to that label by a veteran producer named Fonce Mizell, who years earlier was part of the corporation. That was the production team over at Motown who were behind the Jackson 5's early hits. A Taste of Honey's first song, Boogie Oogie Oogie, went all the way to number one in the fall of 1978. And then it wound up earning the group a Grammy a few months later in the Best New Artist category. Also jumping on the immediate post-Saturday Night Fever bandwagon that summer was the biggest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones. Their pivot to disco was fueled by Mick Jagger's residency in New York City, where he was regularly seen partying at Studio 54. While some rock diehards condemned the Stones as sellouts for going disco, their defenders reminded everybody that the band had always had their ears tuned to the latest developments in black music, and this really was just the latest manifestation of the Stones' interest in R&B. For the disco scene, having the Stones join the party gave the music a new respectability. And for the Stones, Going Disco gave them their first number one record in five years, Miss You. But the Rolling Stones weren't the only superstar act to go disco in the summer of 78. Way at the other end of the musical spectrum, cheese pop maestro Barry Manilow entered the disco sweepstakes with his big hit song, Copacabana, which was inspired by the legendary New York nightclub of the same name that had recently reopened as a disco. They worked from eight till four. They were young and they had each other. Who could ask for more at the Copa, Copacabana? And in July of 1978, New York City got a brand new all-disco station when WKTU-FM, which was previously this barely-listened-to adult music station, adopted the disco format. WKTU filled the vacuum left behind by WPIX-FM's ill-timed move to album rock the year before. 
Just two months after they switched to disco, WKTU passed the perennial number one top 40 station, WABC, as the most listened to station in New York, and therefore as the most listened to station in the whole country. By the end of 1978, WKTU's evening DJ, Paco, had the highest ratings ever recorded by any radio DJ in New York City. If you're into disco, you have to be into KTU and Paco, because I haven't stopped dancing yet. While it was the disco boom that enabled WKTU-FM to jump past top 40 station WABC-AM, there was also another force at work here. WKTU's rise marked the first time that a radio station on the FM spectrum passed an AM station to be a market leader. AM radio had been around a lot longer than FM, but music sounded much better on the FM dial and more and more people were migrating to it especially since cars were beginning to be sold with FM radios installed as standard equipment. While WABC had been number one in the ratings for every period since 1962, it never recovered its place as New York's leading music station after it was jumped by WKTU. Soon, in fact, it was also leapfrogged by WBLS, which was an FM R&B station that was now emphasizing disco really heavily at the expense of other styles of R&B. 1979 saw WBLS and WKTU dominate New York radio, going 1-2 in the ratings month after month, with WABC and pop music on AM radio quickly becoming an afterthought. WKTU-FM's success convinced the radio industry that disco was a major musical force and that the disco audience was being underserved. One by one, nearly every market in America saw an FM radio station switch to the all-disco format, And in response to that, every market saw the local AM Top 40 station load up its playlist with disco records in a last-ditch attempt to try and slow the exodus to FM. Those traditional AM Top 40 stations were hoping that going all-in on disco could keep them competitive, but for the AM Top 40s, it was too late. The listeners who'd fled AM music radio for FM weren't coming back. In fact, by mid-1979, FM radio for the first time ever past AM radio in total listenership nationally. And by the early 1980s, most of the old AM top 40 stations, including New York's WABC, abandoned music entirely, switching to all talk formats. So as much as anything else, it was the rise of the all-disco radio format that really enabled disco to completely dominate the music landscape as 1978 turned to 1979, and which led to the inevitable glut of disco music on the radio. But... Jumping on the disco bandwagon wasn't limited to the music industry. Up next, Saturday Night Fever isn't the only disco movie to compete for screen time or the top of the charts. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Iberostar Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at lairdsuperfood.com. 
And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. In the summer of 78, a film called Thank God It's Friday hit movie theaters. Thank God it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Thank God It's Friday was set in a fictional L.A. club called The Zoo, and it brought to the big screen a West Coast version of the goings-on at the local disco. The Zoo, like Brooklyn's 2001 Odyssey, was a place where ordinary people could experience some approximation of the glamour that was inaccessible to that great mass of people who would never get to set foot inside Studio 54. Of course, Studio 54 and its star-studded clientele kept up a steady presence in the gossip columns and the celebrity magazines, but the local disco would have to do for most of America. And so by 1978, the original Brooklyn 2001 Odyssey Disco started to open franchises across the country, becoming sort of the McDonald's of dance clubs. Now, I remember the local disco across the street from my high school in Queens, New York, and it was a far cry from the fantasy of Studio 54. It was called Jerry's Disco, and it was owned by this guy, Jerry Rosenberg, who was famous in New York at that time for starring in TV ads for cut-rate appliance stores, dressed as a construction worker with the tagline, What's the story, Jerry? And he brought this exact same sensibility to Jerry's Disco. Hey, Jerry, what's the story? You want a party, you want a dance, you want a great night out, come on down to Jerry's Disco. But Jerry, what's the story? Unbelievable lights, unbelievable sound, giant dance floor, really big drinks and a dime. Talk about atmosphere, in other words, see for yourself. The party starts every night at nine, and I'll be here waiting for you. That's the story, Jerry! That's the story! Anyway, the movie Thank God It's Friday's biggest contribution to the culture, by far, was launching one of its featured performers, Donna Summer, into superstardom. Ever since her first hit, Love to Love You Baby, back in 1975, Donna Summer maintained a pretty steady stream of club hits, and occasionally one of those songs would cross over to pop radio, like her groundbreaking single, I Feel Love, in 1977, which we discussed on our previous episode. In Thank God It's Friday, Donna Summer appeared on camera singing a song called Last Dance, and it was her performance of that song in that movie which really set her on the course to become the biggest artist in the whole music business for the rest of the 70s. Donna Summer was signed to an L.A.-based record label called Casablanca Records. Now, according to a memoir written by the label's co-founder, Larry Harris, Casablanca Records was not a product of the 1970s. It was the 1970s. And no person or company in that era of narcissism and druggy gluttony was more emblematic of the times than Casablanca Records and its magnetic founder, Neil Bogart. Besides a steady stream of disco music, the thing that fueled Casablanca Records was cocaine. As Larry Harris recalled, there was blow everywhere. It was like some sort of condiment that had to be brushed away by the waitstaff before the next party was seated. Cocaine dusted everything. It was on fingertips, tabletops, upper lips, and the floor. Just like Henry Stone's TK label down in Miami, Casablanca Records was more than happy to share its cocaine with radio and club DJs in exchange for airplay, making it the most successful label of the disco era. But let's be clear. Casablanca's promotion methods should in no way diminish the fact that Donna Summer was a uniquely talented artist who released one classic single after another in the final years of the 70s. Donna Summer actually had three number one albums in the 12-month period from late 1978 to late 1979, and all three of them were double albums. By now, an entire ecosystem had sprung up around disco, and disco culture had its own dress code to go along with the sounds on the dance floor. 
For men, there were shiny, really colorfully patterned, wide-collared polyester Kiana shirts, which usually were worn open at the chest. Or perhaps a man would go all out with a three-piece polyester leisure suit with wide lapels and bell-bottom pants, preferably white or powder blue. And of course, platform shoes. Now, a woman might show up at the disco in perhaps a knee-length dress with a cinched waist, which was known as the jersey wrap dress. But tube tops are also quite popular, along with halter neck shirts, spandex shorts, cat suits, and dresses with long thigh slits. And women's footwear? Well, that tended towards shoes with chunky heels or maybe even knee boots. And of course, beyond having its own dress code, disco also had its own drug culture. And that culture centered around cocaine. According to the writer Paul Gutenberg, The relationship of cocaine to 1970s disco culture cannot be stressed enough. Superficiality, success, and money were back in, and cocaine intensified and highlighted all their sensations and delusions. Of course, coke use by celebrities and jet-setters made cocaine seem glamorous. And unlike heroin, which was looked at as a street drug used by junkies, cocaine was seen as a soft drug. To be sure, without the stimulating effect of cocaine, those all-night parties at places like Studio 54 would have definitely run out of steam a lot earlier in the evening. Additionally, all that drug use contributed to yet another aspect of disco culture, public sex. Sex in the club's bathroom stalls, stairways, balconies, basement, wherever. And it was generally unprotected sex since the AIDS epidemic hadn't yet struck. This was all consistent with the broader 70s trend towards much freer sexual expression. Disco music reinforced that idea with songs like In the Bush by Musique, which left very little to the imagination. Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards were two musicians who'd been on the scene for a while, backing up bands in New York City, experimenting with jazz and art rock and even punk before finally settling on disco. Nile Rodgers remembers those early days this way. We envisioned ourselves more like an Earth, Wind & Fire type of group because we looked at Earth, Wind & Fire as a group of jazz musicians, you know, sort of like Cool in the Gang. Like we were jazz musicians that learned to play R&B and learned how to write R&B. So our first allegiance would be mainly to jazz. At least that's how I saw it. Bernard was very proud to say, no, I'm a boogaloo musician. (laughs) But then Rogers and Edwards began to get gigs as live touring musicians for some acts associated with the Philadelphia sound. And they came to embrace disco, forming a band called Chic. Sheik's first hit record, Dance, 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 Yowza, 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 was pretty avant-garde for its day. It borrowed sonically from British art rockers Roxy Music as much as it did from disco, and it had this sinister edge. There was a voice that came in at various points throughout the record shouting, Yowza, Yowza, Yowza. Yowza, Yowza, Yowza was something the band had heard shouted by this evil 1930s dance marathon MC in a movie from 1969 called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Yowza, yowza, yowza. Welcome to the dance of destiny, ladies and gentlemen. In that movie, desperate people in Depression-era America were literally dropping dead on the dance floor while competing at a marathon for a cash prize. The idea of tragedy beneath the surface in entertainment and capitalism was a strong undercurrent in Sheik's music. In fact, the band found the whole spectacle of going to discos in order to escape reality to be, at its core, kind of tragic. Even the group's name, Sheik, and the high-fashion clothes they wore were actually intended as a commentary on American class struggle. And the lead vocals in Dance, Dance, Dance sounded kind of disembodied, drained of enthusiasm conveying the futility of hedonism and disregard for meaning. But Sheik's audience didn't necessarily get the song's darker connotations. They just enjoyed the groove, and the record launched Sheik's career. Nile Rogers remembers. Basically, we were going through the worst economic period since the Great Depression. 
if you remember in those times. But if you came to a disco, it was so hedonistic and so amazing, you would have thought that we were the wealthiest people in the world. But it was quite the contrary. We were probably the poorest. But we didn't live like that. We lived like every day was our last. But the best was yet to come for Sheik, as Nile Rogers fondly recalls. Grace Jones was really enamored with us because of everybody dance. And of course she had heard dance, 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 but it was everybody dance that was the killer. So she wanted us to, to understand who she was artistically because uh, she was thinking about having us produce what would have then been her next record. But she told us that the only way that we could truly understand her artistically is to see her live performance. And we were like, okay, cool. Now, this was the very first time we ever heard her speaking voice. It sounded to us like a cross between Marlena Dietrich and sort of Bella Lugosi and an ice and sort of like Bob Marley. It was like the weirdest thing we had ever heard, but we thought that she was just putting that on. And so she says, so all you got to do, darling, is go to the back door and type in your personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. So we thought we had to put on that accent. I mean, I cannot believe we were so dumb. Uh, but really, this was early in our career, so we didn't know. So we went and we knocked on the back door and we were kicking for a long time. They finally opened the door because, you know, the music inside was blasting. Uh, so we did that, and the guy slammed the door in our faces. But before he slammed the door, or while he was slamming the door, he told us to, he said, oh, fuck off. He thought it was the silliest thing he'd ever heard. And we were trying to convince him that it was the truth. So we were kicking on the door yet again, and we were really insistent. And finally, he opened the door again. He said, didn't I tell you guys to fuck off? But Sheik used that rejection as the inspiration for their biggest hit. Nile Rogers remembers. On the way back to my apartment, we had to pass a liquor store. We picked up two bottles of champagne, uh, what we called rock and roll mouthwash, which was Tom Perignon in those days. And uh, we downed them very quickly and we got woozy. And um, we started singing what had come to our minds, which was, ah, fuck off. So we just started jamming, going, ah, fuck off, don't, 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 fuck Studio 54. Fuck off. And we were into it. We thought of every possible situation where the only appropriate answer would be F off. And we just kept going, F off. If a cab driver cuts you off, F off. And then we wrote the cool bridge. <laughs> and we were loving it. We were having so much fun. And then finally, Bernard pulls his glasses down over the bridge of his nose, which is when he always was getting serious with me. And he says, my man, you know this shit is happening. And this is like a couple of years before hip hop. And I'm like, dude, you know, we can't get this on the radio. I went like total hippie on him. And I went, oh man, you know, like, like when you have a bad acid trip, man, and you're like freaking out, man, you know, like, and uh, Bernard was so not a hippie. And he looked at me like I was from outer space. And, and then finally, I got my black card back together. And I said, well, you know, man, you need a fried chicken. You know, you're freaking out on the dance floor. And then Bernard, a light bulb went off. And he says, oh, yeah, it's like that new dance. My kids are doing the freak. And I was like, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> But neither Rogers nor Edwards had ever seen anyone actually do the freak, as Nile Rogers recalls. And uh, so we ran out. We got a copy of Chubby Checker. Come on, baby, let's do the twist. And we got a copy of... Uh, the peppermint twist and we came back home and we listened to it over and over again and neither song told you how to do the dance so we came home and we wrote a song about a dance we didn't know how to do we pretended like we knew how to do it and we knew that everybody in studio 54 knew how to do it or at least we surmised they did so that's what we did we said come on down to 54 find your spot out on the floor oh freak out In retrospect, the massive success of Sheik's Le Freak really served as the starting gun for the final relentless onslaught that saw disco completely swallow American popular culture in the first half of 1979. Follow me here. When it was released, Le Freak very quickly went to number one in December of 1978. 
It bumped You Don't Bring Me Flowers, this schlocky ballad by Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond out of the number one spot. But after one week, Streisand and Diamond retook the top slot. You don't sing me love songs. You hardly talk to me anymore. When I come through the door at the end of the day. One week later, Lafrique bounced back to number one, and this time it held on to the top spot for two weeks. Then it was dethroned at number one by a Bee Gees ballad called Too Much Heaven, which stayed at number one for the next two weeks. But then Lafrique did something remarkable. It bounced back into the number one position for an unprecedented third stint at the top. And this time it stayed at the summit for three weeks in early 1979. For chart observers, this whole back and forth made it seem as though disco itself was battling the rest of pop music for supremacy. And when Lafrique finally vacated the top spot for good in February 1979, disco was essentially proclaimed the champion because Lafrique was replaced at the number one position by another disco record, and then another and another and another. In fact, Disco-related songs held on to the number one spot every week from that point until the end of August. It was a total disco takeover of the pop scene, with Lafrique leading the charge. Lafrique really took disco to another level. It was by far the biggest radio hit disco had ever experienced. And it offered tangible proof to pop radio programmers that demand for disco music had become insatiable. On the next episode of Speed of Sound, Disco rules the world and spawns an army of haters who violently confront disco culture head-on in a baseball stadium in Chicago. If you want to take a deeper dive into the artists and songs you just heard, check out our curated playlist at the Speed of Sound page on the iHeart app. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Until next time, keep your feet on the dance floor and always keep reaching for that mirrored ball. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Turns out a delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything they make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived and other thoughtfully chosen ingredients, their cleaning products smell like a dream and work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. Goodness, there's no better feeling than that. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness 
Visit MrsMeyers.com today. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.